Well, uh, good evening, sisters and brothers. Uh, welcome again to uh, St. Mary's for this, uh, this uh, live uh, smack service uh, this evening. Uh, and can I also welcome those who are online, uh, and especially welcome those from our liturgical services, uh, who have, uh, I'm so sorry about what happened this morning. Uh, some of you may, not, you may or may not know, uh, our liturgical service couldn't stream this morning. So many of our liturgical service people uh, are with us online uh, this evening. Uh, and if that's you, then I'm glad you decided to come as long as well, uh, even though the, the style of service is a bit different from, from what you're used to. Uh, but uh, uh, for those who are here, uh, thank you for being here, uh, and thank you for uh, uh, prioritizing uh, uh, this gathering. Uh, let me lead us in prayer uh, as we uh, begin to look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us together uh, as your people around your word, uh, and we pray that you help us now uh, as we look at your word together, uh, please would you speak to us? Uh, please would you show us the Lord Jesus? Uh, please would you help us to love him and obey him? Uh, so we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When you turn on the news or read it on the internet, do you get the sense that the world has lost its way? Now, I know I do, uh, and it's not just because of the pandemic. There is war racism, abuse, corruption, crime, immorality, and the widespread killing of unborn babies, exploitation, authoritarianism, recklessness with people's lives, world leaders you can't trust because they blatantly lie and seem to do everything for their own gain. That's a pretty awful state of affairs. The world has lost its way. But actually, when I think about it, the world has always been like this ever since the fall. It might look different in different times, but the same sin and selfishness has always been there. The world has lost its way, and that happened when we first sinned and turned away from God. At the time of 1 Samuel, Israel had also lost its way. Now, 500 years before this, God had rescued them from Egypt, brought them into the Promised Land. But in the land, they developed this pattern of sin and rebellion. They would turn away from God and turn to idols. And God would send their enemies to conquer and oppress them. Eventually, they cry out to God for help. God sends them a judge who will be their savior. But when he dies, they're back to worshiping idols again. And each time this happened, Israel sank deeper and deeper into sin. And by the time, uh, by the end of the book of Judges, even their judges were despicable characters. There was civil war, the grossness of immorality and degradation, idolatry was pervasive, and even the priests of Yahweh, the one true God, were corrupt. Situation at the start of 1 Samuel, summarized in the last verse of the book of Judges. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the book, the books of Samuel, or rather the, the, the book of Samuel, because 1 and 2 Samuel actually were originally one book, they tell us how God rescued Israel from this hopeless situation and brought them to the cusp of the golden age of their history, where they would live as God's people in peace and safety in God's place, under God's abundant blessing, shepherded by God's chosen king. The king who would be God's answer for a lost nation. But the book itself doesn't start with judges and kings and big-time leaders. I'd rather, 
It starts by showing us God at work in some very ordinary people. And so in the first verse of the book, we're introduced to an obscure man with an obscure genealogy from an obscure place, a nobody from the hills of Israel, the Ulus. And his name was Elkanah. And he had two wives, which was not unusual at the time, Hannah and Penina. And verse 2 tells us that Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, one of God's promises to Israel in the land that is different from his promise to us in Christ was material blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. And one of those blessings was fruit of the womb. One of the curses is what they called barrenness. It didn't mean there was a correlation between an individual's godliness and their ability to have children, but the fact that Israel was spiritually far from God meant that they, as a nation, were not experiencing his promised blessings uh, in the way they were meant to at the time. Now, Elkanah was a very devout man. Every year, he took his family up to Shiloh. It's a place where, where Yahweh was worshipped. And there, we meet Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who were, who were God's priests, and we'll meet them again uh, in a couple of weeks. But Elkanah, he was a, he was a fair man. Uh, even in the way he distributed the sacrificial meat, which was a very special and religiously significant treat, uh, he showed his love for Hannah. For he understood, verse 5, that the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, had closed her womb. Now, at this stage, we don't know why God did that. But we know it caused Hannah great pain and suffering. Especially since her rival kept provoking her grievously, to irritate her about this matter. In fact, every year when they went up to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh, she would taunt her. Until Hannah was so depressed, she would lose her appetite to eat even that sacrificial meat. And she would just cry and cry and cry. Elkanah would try to help. And he would say in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? But I don't think that would have really made her feel better. Lah. You know, I'm sure there are people here and people who are watching at home who are in pain because of some circumstance in your life. Now, infertility is a common problem in our society. And while it doesn't have the same spiritual significance outside the old covenant with Israel, it, it's still a painful experience. Or it may be that you or someone that you love are carrying an illness, a, a disease, an injury. And it's something you have to live with, but it's not easy. Or maybe you have been emotionally injured in some way by something that's happened to you in the past. Or maybe there's a relationship that's really, really important to you, and yet it seems like it's just going down the drain. Bewildering, and it hurts. And you know that God is sovereign, that nothing escapes his control, but you, you don't know how can this possibly fit in with a God who loves you and cares for you. And there may be people like Penina who might even tease you or joke with you about it. They think it's funny, but actually it's not funny. And other people, good people, like Elkanah, people who care, they try and comfort you and they try to cheer you up, but 
But that's no good either. Like Hannah, you go through times of depression. Hannah went through that year after year. Some people dread Christmas because it's, because it's supposed to be a time when everyone's really happy, but, but for them it really isn't. And Hannah must have felt like that every year when she went up to Shiloh. But she still went up to worship God, the God who had closed her womb. Well, this year the family are at Shiloh. In fact, there they are. They've just finished the fellowship meal at the small temple there. And Eli is on the other corner by the doorpost, just watching everything that's happening. And then Hannah unexpectedly stands up. She's weeping before God. She's praying. And she says to God, verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, he would be permanently set apart for God's service. The thing about her prayer is that she's praying in an unusual way for the time, right? Because the lips are moving, but she's not speaking. She's praying in her heart, a bit like how we were singing just now. And Eli doesn't realize she's praying because people in those days would generally pray out loud. And so he thinks she's drunk. As he says to her in verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. You also know what it's like to be misunderstood, don't you? You know what it's like when people jump to conclusions about what you're doing. You're trying to do something good, and they're thinking something bad. Eli has probably already profiled Hannah as what they used to call a worthless woman. But Hannah explains the situation to him. He says in verse 15, no, she says in verse 15, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have, not, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Friends, anxiety and vexation will come to all of us, whether often or rarely. Times of anxiety and vexation will come, and when, when they come, we can do one of two things. We can ignore God or we can turn our anguish into prayer. For years, Hannah has been coming to Shiloh, but this year, she decides to pour out her soul to God in prayer. And friends, it's tempting, isn't it, to avoid God or to keep Him at bay with just normal religious observation when we face hard times. Tempting to blame him or to run away from him. But my brother, my sister in Christ, you and I have far more to go on than Hannah. You know God loves you. You know he cares for you. There can be no doubt about that because Jesus died for you. And he invites you to come to him with your problems, with your heartaches, with your anxieties, with your fears, to trust God in the darkness, to bring your prayers and petitions before him. Eli realizes his mistake. And he joins his prayers with Hannah. He says to her in verse 17, Go in peace, 
and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she says to him, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And here, my friends, is the point where the narrative turns. Up to this point, it's been a story of sadness, of desperation, of misunderstanding. And Hannah has been the victim. But now, verse 18, she goes on her way. She eats. Her face is no longer sad. Now, as, as New Testament believers, it's hard for us to see why Eli's words are the turning point for Hannah. You've got to put yourself back into Old Testament kind of mode. Right? In the Old Testament time, the priests were like mediators between the people and God. And so for Hannah, the prayers of the priests joined with hers was a very powerful thing indeed. For as priest, he took her prayers and asked that the God of Israel would bring them to fruition. And she would have been sure that God heard his prayer. Now, in the New Testament, all God's people are priests in that biblical sense. We can all pray for each other. We all have equal access to God. And so when our pastors or our leaders pray for us, we're, we're just praying as another brother or sister, isn't it? But the person who does play a role like Eli's and does so perfectly, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the great high priest who constantly stands before God praying for us. And he takes our feeble, confused, and, and entirely unworthy prayers and joins them with his. He offers our prayers to the Father who always listens to him. And he never mis makes mistakes like Eli. And so we, like Hannah, can be assured that our prayers are heard. It doesn't mean God is always going to give us children or lift our depression or, or do the thing that we think is, is going to be the best thing. But we can be absolutely sure that He hears our prayers, that He understands our situation, and that He will do what is best for us, which He knows and we don't. And so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Well, the next morning, the, the family worship again and they head back to Ramah. Elkanah and Hannah have marital relations, are playing their part. And Yahweh remembers Hannah. He answers her prayer. And in due course, Hannah conceives and gives birth to a son, and she names him Samuel, which sounds like ask, because she says in verse 20, I have asked for him from the Lord. And then we come to the next scene. And it's time for the family to, to go up to Shiloh again for the annual sacrifice. Elkanah is ready to fulfill Hannah's vow, which he's now taken on as his own. But Hannah doesn't want to go. Is she having second thoughts about the promise that she made to God? And you can understand that she is, lah, because I mean, it's one thing to offer animal sacrifice. It's quite another thing to, to take a little boy and give him to God. But she says to her husband in verse 22, as soon as the child is weaned, who is probably about three years old, 
I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah knows his wife is a godly woman. He also knows the temptation she will face. He says to her in verse 23, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his, or maybe better, your word. In other words, may the Lord help you to fulfill your vow. So Hannah nurses Samuel until he is weaned. And at the right time, she takes a little boy along with a bull and flour and wine and brings him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. She offers the easy sacrifice. They slaughter the bull. But then she offers the difficult sacrifice, the living sacrifice. And they bring the boy to Eli. And she says to Eli, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And Samuel worships God there. He fulfills her promise. Brothers and sisters, all of us who belong to Jesus have made a promise to God. Sometimes we think twice when it comes to fulfilling it. And I'm not just talking about people who may say they'll serve God in a particular way and then later get cold feet. When, when we receive Christ the Lord, we promise to follow Him as our Lord. And when we formalize that at baptism, we declare that we turn to Christ. We repent of our sins. We renounce evil. We die to the old self. We have a new self. It's following Jesus to live for Him. Under Him is our King. We gave to God our lives as a living sacrifice to do with as He sees fit, to serve Him in any way He wants, whether it's at work or at home, for some of us even, for invocational ministry. Our lives, we said, are yours. I surrender to you. And now for the rest of our lives, we're putting that into effect. Some of us gave our life to Jesus many years ago. But as the years have gone on, we kind of forgotten about that. Got into a pattern of selfishness. Friends, don't hold back from giving yourself to God. For those with children, don't hold back from giving your children to God. God remembered Hannah. When she was barren, gave her a son. She responded in obedient and willing sacrifice. God remembered us when we were lost. He gave us his son. We had to respond in obedient and willing sacrifice to him. As we've looked at this narrative, we've seen Hannah's suffering. We've seen her prayer. We've, we've seen her sacrifice. And as we've looked back on this narrative, as we look at it in the big picture of history, we can actually see how God was using that suffering, prayer, and sacrifice of Hannah. Right? When you step back 
and see it in the big picture. You can see actually God brought good out of that dejection that Hannah was suffering at the beginning in a way she could never have foreseen. You see, because of the way she suffered, she prayed the prayer she did. She made the promise that she made. In answer to her prayer, God gave her this child. In fulfillment of her promise, she brought Samuel to the shrine as a child, her sacrifice. And because Samuel was there, he became the judge of Israel through that time at Shiloh. He was able to unite the nation under God. And because he was able to unite the nation, he was able to prepare the way for David and to anoint him as king. And because David was a king, God would be able to promise him that one day he would raise up another king from his line, a king who would reign forever, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, all the world, you and I, and even Hannah of all, can be forgiven of our sins and brought into a relationship with God. You see, God was working out His plan step by step by step. And the suffering and prayer and sacrifice of Hannah was part of this big plan. She didn't know that then. But we who now can stand back and see the big picture, ah, we can see and understand. And friends, there are many things in our lives that we go through that we don't understand. We often can't see the big picture that we are part of. We go through our own pains and sorrows and griefs. We, we don't know why we have to face them. God has a purpose behind them all. But we don't know the full story. But what we do know, Romans 8.28 tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that our highest good is that we should become more and more like Jesus now and ultimately be with Him in glory. So even if we don't know the details of the story and why we have to go through what we go through at any point, we know God is at work. We know He's got a plan. And we know it will be worth it in the end. Like Hannah, we are to pour out our hearts to Him in prayer. And we are to keep our promise to follow Jesus sacrificially in the ups and downs of life. But there is another thing that we learn about God and how He works through this passage as well. God was about to do a really big thing for Israel in this book of Samuel. And how does he start? With an unknown person in a small little place, an unremarkable family. God is going to change the course of history using people that the world will think of as nobodies. Even after this incident, Alkana and Hannah probably just lived pretty ordinary lives. They weren't people that the world would consider as great. And in our New Testament reading today as well, we read how many of the people that God chose to be in His church were not the great kind of people, not the kind, but, but actually the kind of people that the world would look down on. My friend, if you want to be used by God for His purposes, that is a great thing. But don't aspire to be great. Great is overrated. 
What is important is not that you're great, but that you are godly. In the biblical storyline, there are a number of times where God brings about a birth in a special way. And each time it's to show that he's the one who's providing and raising this child for his purpose and doing something that we human beings can't do ourselves. Started a thousand years before this with the birth of Isaac. Because only God can deliver on his promises to Abraham. It would end a thousand years after this with a virgin birth of Jesus. Because only God can provide a savior for the world. But the next time in the Bible, we will encounter a barren woman giving birth to a son. Her name would be Elizabeth. And her son would be John the Baptist. Like Samuel, John would be devoted to God from birth. And as Samuel prepared the way for King David, John would prepare the way for King Jesus. And Jesus too would exemplify this way that God is at work. He would come from a small village and appear like a nobody. But the God who works through the suffering and prayer and sacrifice of his people will ultimately work through the suffering and prayer and sacrifice of his son. The suffering of Jesus in his sacrifice on the cross would bring us forgiveness and life as he died there to take the penalty of our sin in our place. And before he died, he would pour out his heart to his father in prayer and in response to his pleas, God would raise him from the dead. Jesus is God's king who will come back at the end of the age. And this coming king, as we will see in the weeks to come, is God's ultimate answer for a lost world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereignly at work in our world for our good and your glory. Please help us to trust you, especially in hard times, knowing that you are good and fulfilling your good purposes. And please help us when we face suffering to, to come before you in prayer and not to turn away. We thank you for your love to us expressed in your Son. Thank you for remembering us. Thank you for giving him to save us by, by dying for us on the cross and rising again. And we want to offer our lives to you in response, to, in love and service. And we pray that you help us not only to say that, but to mean it. And not only to say that and to mean it, but to put it into practice in the way that we live. And we ask this through our great high priest, who is always praying for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.